and uh, introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, the talk today uh, is one that uh, a number of you asked. Uh, I asked a number of you, who should we try to bring to Mershon this year? And one of the names that came up early in the fall by one of my graduate students actually was Steve Biddle. See if you can get Steve to come. So I put that into my back of my head and I started working on it. And luckily we found a way uh, and he agreed to come and talk about his new book, Military Power. And I think it's a really interesting book. It's a book that advances a couple theses close to my heart. One which is that uh, power is the most important concept in political science that we don't define. We know perfectly well doesn't mean very much. And that when you actually operationalize it, uh, it's, it loses all of its traction. And so he tried to fix that problem. I actually started working on what power means and how you think about it in operational terms. He does another uh, thing in this book. He advances a very controversial argument, I would guess, uh, around the Pentagon. And that is that there's a system of war that evolved as uh, the lethality of the battlefield increased. And this modern system of force employment is more important factor in explaining who wins and who loses in military battles than much of the technology or the amount of armament they bring to the bring to the contest. But he does more than advance it, he tests that. He looks in three wars of whether or not this can, argument can be sustained. He builds a formal model of it and tests it in a variety of simulations. Uh, it's a very impressive piece of work. So without further ado, well, let me say Steve did all of his work at Harvard. He has three degrees from Harvard. He's taught at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He served in some of the most important defense think tanks in Washington, like the Institute for Defense Analysis. And he's currently a tenured professor at the uh, Carlisle War College. So without further ado, Stephen Biddle. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. The, the introduction is kind of a tough act to follow. I hope the, the talk is reasonably worthwhile. Yeah. Originally, I was just going to stand here. My wife, who's an actual military historian, told me they're, this is Mershon. They're going to be military historians in the audience. They'll all insist on PowerPoints. So, against my better instincts, I decided I would do a PowerPoint presentation. And the point of the PowerPoint presentation is to talk about why battles come out the way they do. Why the winners win, why do the losers lose. Why are some battles apparent cakewalks, others bloody stalemates? All of which ought to be pretty high-stakes stuff. Most of defense policy at the end of the day turns around what we, what we think produces success in battle as opposed to failure. A lot of IR theory turns around what we believe states assume is necessary to produce victory as opposed to defeat in battle. Now, most of the answers to the questions that I just gave you a moment ago, people at the moment believe are changing dramatically under the impact of a transnational revolution in information processing. And because those answers are changing under the influence of this revolution in information, most people believe that we need to change radically the nature of the US military. We need to transform it to be able to keep up with the demands of information-driven warfare. Now, change, of course, is inevitable, but continuity is just as inevitable. And the main point I'm going to try and make this afternoon is that the debate at large, I think, systematically exaggerates the magnitude of the change and slights the magnitude of the continuity in the actual conduct of war over the course of the modern era. And in fact, I'm going to argue that the underlying determinants of success and failure in battle have been remarkably stable since at least 1917, 1918, and are unlikely to change anytime soon. 
and given that, the expectation in the policy domain that we're on the cusp of some sort of radical revolutionary transformation in the nature of warfare is unsound. And I think the policy implications that follow from that are largely ill-advised. Now, scholars, I don't think, have done a lot better with this class of issues. And I think the kind of simplifying concepts that people use to approximate military power, especially in the large NIR work, uh, are over-simplification and overlook critical variables in ways that I think undermine the empirical potential of literature. The way I'm going to go about trying to support those claims is I'm going to start by being a little more careful about what I mean by the term military power, since lots of people use it in different ways for different purposes. I'll spend just a little time sketching the standard explanations out there at the moment for empirical variation in the military power that states have wielded at time, particular times and places. I'll spend most of my time laying out at least the qualitative intuition behind a different explanation for variance in real military outcomes, the outcomes of battle, battles over time. I'm then going to fast forward to the 21st century and spend a little bit of time talking about recent combat experience in Afghanistan and Iraq and what that says about the validity of the argument I'll present earlier. And I'll return at the end to the question of what difference does it all make for either policy or scholarship in international relations theory. So what do I mean when I say military power? It's obviously not the same thing as state power. It's a subset of that. And the particular subset that I'm interested in consists of three different related but logically independent dimensions. Uh, a power's ability to take and hold territory, its ability to inflict and avoid casualties in the course of doing that, and the time that's required to do it. Now, obviously, these three things can vary independently of one another, and in a variety of important conditions, they trade off against one another. <coughs> there is a formal theory in the book, uh, which I was going to present because I was sure that historians would demand it, but in fact, I'm not going to talk about it very much this afternoon that allows us to talk about the trade-offs among these dimensions of military capability in a more explicit way. For now, I'm just going to present them as, as given here. A final bit of throat clearing before I get to the point is that I'm only going to talk about one class of military conflict, what I'm going to term mid to high intensity conventional warfare, which excludes at the upper end of an intensity spectrum the use of weapons of mass destruction in global thermonuclear war, and excludes at the low end of the spectrum possible intensity, terrorism, counterinsurgency, low intensity conflict, and guerrilla war. What I'm going to be focusing on is the stuff in the middle. The world wars, obviously, but also regional conflicts between states of the kind that we've seen in the Mideast, in Africa, and elsewhere. Now, is this just an artifact of recent history and the particular fascinations and institutional interests of the army, is there any reason to actually be concerned about the stuff inside the blue box that I'm going to be talking about? Now, it is clearly not by any stretch of the imagination the only important military planning problem for the United States right now. It's arguably not the most important one. I do think, however, that it's an important problem, both for policy and for scholarship. These things continue to happen we can talk about their relative incidence, but they at least have not disappeared. Since the Cold War ended, we've seen what I'm defining as mid to high intensity conventional wars in Ethiopia and Eritrea, in the Congo, in Rwanda, in Bosnia, in Croatia, and Kuwait. The United States alone has been involved in two of these in just the last three years, in Afghanistan and the major combat phase of Iraq. Now, this is not meant to suggest that this is the only thing anybody ought to worry about. 
but I think it's at least enough of a conceivable possibility that the United States might get involved in another one of these in Syria or in Iran or on the Korean Peninsula that as a defense planning problem, this has not lost its importance. And of course, for scholars who are interested in explaining the empirical variance in military outcomes in international politics over time, this has been high incidence over the period of historical interest to us and thus is relevant for the scholarship involved either way. That's where I'm going to start. It's not, represent, it's not meant to suggest uh, an end point, but I think it's a reasonable point of departure. I'm going to divide the literature on this subject up into three big baskets. The first basket of explanations of variance in military power talks primarily about the quantity of the stuff on the two sides, the relative material preponderance of the attacker and defender. The three-to-one rule is the best known of these, but there's a larger collection of ideas that holds that if you outnumber the other side, you're prone to succeed, other things being equal. Another body of literature that's particularly influential in the policy debate today turns on the quality of the stuff or the technology involved in the two sides. Offense-defense theory is the most common of these views in the scholarly literature, but there's a much wider body of thought on this that crosses the scholarly and the policy. Both of those are materialist. Either the quantity of material or the quality of the material. Intuitively, we might suppose that forced employment or how the material gets used strategy, tactics, skill, motivation, somehow or another ought to be relevant here. And holistic military balance assessments have always made some attempt to take force employment into account. Systematic, formally structured theories, on the other hand, and especially the body of military models that underlie a lot of the defense planning process in Washington, have traditionally regarded this as too hard to deal with. We can't quantify it, we can't measure it. As a result, it's been systematically excluded from the body of systematic theory involved in this area. I'm going to argue, however, that if we're going to do a proper job of explaining the real historical variance in combat outcomes, we need to do a better job of systematically interrelating the way the material gets used and the nature of the material that's being used. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take one slide and just sketch an outline form the nature of the argument I'm going to make as to how these two things interrelate. And then I'm going to return later on to the particular pieces of it and develop it in a little bit more detail. The key argument is that the interaction between the stuff and the way it's used lies at the heart of explanatory power in this area. And in particular, I'm going to argue that at least since 1914, it has been suicidal to be caught exposed in the open in the face of modern firepower. Given that, some way of reducing their exposure to what Ernst Jünger termed this modern era storm of steel has been necessary if you're going to do anything militarily on the battlefield, either on the attack or on the defense. And I'm going to argue that since at least the last part of the First World War, the central means by which militaries have tried to reduce their exposure to radically lethal firepower has been a collection of operational and tactical techniques that, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call the modern system. I'll explain what it is in a couple of minutes. For now, though, the point to bear in mind is that this modern system emerged from a process of very heavy selection pressure that produced convergent evolution on this collection of ideas as a result of the uh, Great Western Front trench stalemate. And it had reached something surprisingly close to its modern 21st century form, in fact, by as early as 1918. And the exposure reduction that this collection of techniques afforded restored mobility to the battlefield, made it possible to do militarily useful things, 
And because the way it's done that is by exploiting features of military technology that have changed only slowly over time, even as the nominal proving ground of thousands <laughs> has increased dramatically over time, it has, as a result, retained its importance through about 100 years of subsequent military experience. Now, if the modern system is such a great thing, uh, why doesn't everybody just do it? And if everybody just does it, it's constant. I can't explain variance in military outcomes by reference to a constant. In fact, everybody doesn't do it. And the reason everybody doesn't do it is because although it's militarily very effective, it has some very serious downsides associated with it. It's hard as nails to do, just in terms of the technical challenges involved. Even if you can do it, it has some very unpopular side effects politically and organizationally. The result of that is that, in fact, there's been wide variation in the degree to which, over time, any given military has approximated this particular ideal of how one should use one's forces. Where both sides fully implement this system of force employment, I'm going to argue that the result of that has been to dramatically damp the effect of nominal increases in weapon lethality, which in turn has produced a surprising degree of similarity in the dynamics of combat, whether you're talking about 1918, 1943, 1952, or perhaps 2006. On the other hand, where you don't fully implement it, You've been fully exposed to increasingly lethal weapons with increasingly painful consequences. And what that has produced is a growing gap over time in the real military power of the states who can overcome these disadvantages and fully implement the modern system and those who cannot. And that implies that if we want to understand the role of technology on the battlefield throughout the modern era, we cannot do it except in interaction with the way the two sides use their forces. The same piece of technological change, or if you like, the same proposal for a new weapon program in the Defense Department, can have precisely opposite effects on winners and losers depending on the, how the two sides use that material. And under a lot of circumstances, the marginal impact on combat outcomes of variations in how the stuff is used overwhelms the marginal impact of variations in what kind of stuff they have available to them. Now, let me go back now and uh, develop some a little bit more detail on some of the key issues here. And I'm just going to start by sketching some of the trends in the lethality of weapon technology in the modern era. And I'll just start with the range of nominal artillery systems available to the European great powers from 1900 until the end of the 20th century in kilometers. And what we see is a substantial increase. Nominal artillery ranges in the tens of kilometers early in the century, ranges in excess of 100 kilometers for rocket artillery by the end of the century. What about armor penetration? What I've done here is to plot the range at which representative anti-tank systems can perforate 200 millimeters of rolled homogeneous armor as a function of time. 200 millimeters of rolled homogeneous armor is about 8 inches of solid steel. Now, some people in the room have had this experience. Those who haven't, if you wrap your knuckles on it, it sounds like concrete. I mean, there's no sense of metallicness to this much metal. That's a lot of armor protection. In the middle part of the century, it's impenetrable. By the end of the 20th century, it can be penetrated at ranges in excess of 6 kilometers. Now, as the guns have gotten better, so the armor has gotten better, uh, I'm here to tell you this afternoon, though, that the gun has won the gun-armor race in the 20th century. And to suggest what that process has looked like, 
what I've done here is to plot the range at which the basket of armor penetrators in a U.S. tank division can penetrate the basket of tank targets in a hostile division over time since 1945, and we see the same pattern of dramatic growth that we saw in all the other indicators above. Now, most of us intuitively are familiar with the idea that in World War I, there was a big increase in firepower available on the modern battlefield. The point I want you to take away from this slide is it didn't stop in World War I. There has been an ongoing, progressive process of increasing nominal lethality on the modern battlefield ever since the beginning of the modern era, and that in turn has defined what I would term the central problem in the history of modern tactics. How in the world do you survive against this storm of steel long enough to do something useful? And I think the central answer to this question has been this collection of techniques that I'm calling the modern system. Now, I'm just going to talk about the part of the modern system that operates at the tactical level of war here. The book talks about the operational level of war as well. We can do that in Q&A if you're interested. The heart of the modern system lies in a series of techniques for using the natural complexity of the Earth's surface as a military environment to provide cover and concealment against hostile fire. And I will just use a somewhat silly but uh, visual demonstration that I'm kind of fond of. Let's see. Uh, this is the Earth's surface. <laughs> Generally flat, nothing up my sleeves. <laughs> uh, this is a machine gun. Direct fire, flat trajectory weapon. Anything that is illuminated on the towel can be fired upon by my machine gun. Anything that's in shadow is what the military calls dead ground, or terrain offering cover and concealment against hostile fire. And you'll note that even for this pretty flat piece of the Earth's surface, this is not the Andes or the Alps, there is a lot of dead ground almost wherever I put the flashlight. As little as two feet of net elevation difference can conceal a prone infantryman from a machine gun crew dug in properly with the barrel at ground level. Now, especially for those of you who are graduate students, I habitually suggest to graduate students that you develop an eye for terrain. And one of the best ways to do that is to go out into a field somewhere and lie down with your eyes at true ground level and observe how much of the world around you just disappeared. Now, academics are told to cultivate a certain eccentricity. This will contribute. <laughs> <laughs> but it also speaks to a terribly important element of the modern system. Now, even with the total aggregate amount of shade on the towel at any given time, in order to get from point A to point B, I can't stay within shaded ground. Eventually, I have to cross into the open. And in order to survive, and in order to make it, take advantage of the shadow that's on the towel, I need to disperse my formations and break up into small independently maneuvering formations. The shaded areas are irregular, they're distributed randomly. I can't take a 1,000 soldier Napoleonic infantry formation, maneuver it on this ground and keep very much of it undercover at any given moment. In order for these two things to work to provide cover and concealment, I need suppressive fire. Sooner or later, I am going to hit illuminated ground. When I do that, I need some way of keeping the defender's head down to reduce their rate of fire to enable me to sprint from one patch of cover to the next. Suppressive fire's power comes from its extreme efficiency relative to killing fire under many circumstances. A single U.S. 
uh, tow wire guided anti tank missile system can kill as many as seven tank sized targets at ranges up to five kilometers in three minutes or less if they're unhindered by suppression fire, suppressive fire. If suppression without killing any of them simply forces them to duck, move to another location, and come back up in a new firing position, that kill rate can be reduced from seven down to one even without killing any of the, the hostile targets directly. To make all of these things work requires the ability to combine different weapon types. The kinds of weapon technologies that tend to be good at producing suppressive effects, not terribly accurate, but high volume sustained fire, think for example artillery, tend to be poor at producing killing effects because of their inaccuracy. Artillery, because it's located well in the rear, has access to large supplies of ammunition. That enables it to project these effects over large areas over long times, but by virtue of the distance from the fight that enables you to amass the ammunition, you suffer from inaccuracy. A rifle, by contrast, is a great killing system. It's a lousy suppressive weapon, because individual infantrymen can't carry enough ammunition forward to be able to maintain a suppressive fire very long. If you can combine these two systems, the artillery keeps suppressive fire in the general area until the infantry is close, then lifts its fire while the infantry uses the small amount of ammunition it can carry to do the deed at the end of the process, I can make all of this work. Without it, it's hard to do. Now, what are the downsides associated with this particular program of using military materiel? And I'll start with the sheer technical difficulty of it. In order to make my way across this towel and maximize the amount of time I spend in shade and provide suppressive fire when I'm not, I'm going to have to have individualized custom military decision making by each of possibly tens of thousands of 18 to 30 year old junior officers. If I'm going to use combined arms to coordinate artillery suppressive fire and direct fire killing at the last minute, I'm going to have to coordinate the activities of units that are separated by many kilometers of distance, who are moving at different rates over broken terrain at different times, many of whom are facing lethal threats that occupy their entire attention at the moment and limits their ability to communicate back to these other combat elements, like for example the artillery wall in the rear, to tell them where they are and where they're doing, and what they're doing. If I'm going to have this kind of tight combined arms cooperation at low organizational levels, at platoons and companies, for example, it means that these same 18 to 30-year-old junior officers have to have the kind of knowledge required in order to master the employment, the care and feeding, the training, and the sustainment of very, very different kinds of combat power. Tanks, mortars, walking soldiers, armored personnel carriers, the sheer knowledge burden of mastering this amount of material is extraordinarily demanding. Even if you can do all of that, there are a variety of reasons why some states and some societies aren't going to want to. One reason, for example, is that in order to do this, I've got to be willing to devolve authority and autonomy and initiative down to all those 18 to 30 year olds who have to be accustomed to the idea of making their own decisions in life and death situations and commanding other people to do them. Now, if I'm, for example, Saddam Hussein in, say, 1998, the idea of cultivating a culture of individual initiative 
in an officer corps that may very well decide to use that individual initiative to get rid of me is a very, very dangerous way of doing business militarily. The kind of dispersion that's necessary in order to take advantage of small and irregularly shaped patches of dead ground puts a lot of distance between the leaders and the lead. I may not be able to walk up to my enlisted subordinates, grab them by the ear, and pull them forward when necessary to keep an advance moving. Now, imagine, for example, that the leaders are uh, Serbian Orthodox and the lead are Bosnian Muslims. My confidence and willingness as a Serbian Orthodox platoon leader to believe that a platoon full of Orthodox Muslims are at risk of their own lives, going to do the right thing and press forward against hostile fire simply because that's what I told them to do without being able to force them to do it. Maybe I'm willing to do that, maybe I'm not. Maybe the leaders are English aristocrats and the led are working class rabble. There are a lot of situations where ethnic or class divisions within societies will make this kind of distance difficult to tolerate even if it's nominally advantageous in military terms. This same dispersion means that I can't mass enough combat power right at the border in order to prevent the invader from putting one boot on the homeland side of the border. I have to be willing to give up ground early and then retake it by counterattack. That tends not to be popular with people whose homes are in the border area. It tends to be problematic for states who have important geostrategic assets, like, for example, iron mines in the international border area, as was the case with France in two world wars. It's very unpopular for people whose whole country is in the border area, like, for example, Israel. And last but not least, simply the fact that these things require a substantial ability to master technical detail can be very problematic for some states and some times. In interwar France, for example, as a result of civil military conflict between the French civilian regime and the, and the uh, military, they were unwilling to allow the military a long-service professional force and imposed on them a short-term conscription manpower system. In a short-term conscripted manpower system, you lose people to civilian life before they get the time to master this extraordinarily demanding syllabus of skills. The net result of these effects, which vary from state to state in their intensity, and sometimes vary in time series for a given state in intensity, is a substantial amount of variance in the way forces actually get used in war, and to sum up the theory as a whole in light of that variance, uh, I, I figured you know, I could get away probably without presenting the equations, but I couldn't get away without presenting some quantitative results. So by way of summarizing the deductive claims of this body of argument, I plotted here one of the dimensions of military power I talked about earlier, the invader's ability to take and hold ground in kilometers, as a function of time, which I'm going to use as a proxy for increases in systemic technological sophistication <clears throat> as a function of variations in the way the two sides use their forces. And the first point to take away from the slide is that failure to implement the modern system always hurts. An attacker who doesn't implement the modern system always takes less ground than one who does. A defender who fails to implement the modern system always yields more ground than one who does. But the magnitude of the pain associated with the failure has grown dramatically as the lethality of the things that are punishing the error has gone up. 
Early in the 20th century, it was a lousy idea to be an attacker without access to the modern system, but maybe it meant that instead of nominally taking 10 to 12 kilometers in my offensive, I'd take <coughs> seven or eight. This is a semi-long scale, incidentally, beware. By the end of the 20th century, the lethality of what's being shot at me means that I have essentially stopped at the border if I try and operate that way. If I am a defender who fails to implement the modern system, early in the century this is bad. It doubles or triples the amount of ground I give up. By the end of the 20th century, it is catastrophic, and I lose the ability to hold anything under those circumstances. But when both sides use the modern system, the result is very little change in expected territorial ground game by the attacker in spite of 100 years of technological change. In this conception, what technology is doing is it's acting as a wedge that's progressively driving apart the real military fortunes of those who can and those who cannot use their forces in this way, but with much less effect on military outcomes when both sides do this. A final point to take away from the slide is that the same technological innovation can have precisely opposite effects on offensive and defensive success as a function of how the two sides use their forces. Take the basket of technologies that are often held in the interwar period to produce the mid-century revolution of military affairs, tank, radio, and the airplane. That same set of technological improvements can dramatically favor defenders or dramatically favor attackers as a function of how the two sides use their forces. Now, with that body of claims, the, the book tests them in a variety of ways. I'm just going to, instead of going through that, fast forward to some material that the book didn't cover in as much detail as I'd like because of time and talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on very recently. And in particular, is there anything going on in the beginning of the 21st century that should lead us to believe that the book is now irrelevant uh, and nobody should get uh, social science citation index hits uh, for producing something that has been completely overturned by technological change occurring shortly after the publication date. Lots of people think so. After all, there are a lot of people who believe that we are indeed at the, the, the critical moment in the you know, coming together of a new revolution of military affairs and who see precisely the campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq as the trenchant empirical evidence that shows that, in fact, this set, set of hypotheses is right. By contrast, I don't see any revolution going on. All those curves a minute ago are smooth, continuous. There's no discontinuity. There's no radical change in anything happening anytime soon, according to me. Does anything about Afghanistan and Iraq suggest that we should expect that kind of radical discontinuity? Uh, the answer, you'll be shocked to hear, because I don't think there is. Instead, what I think recent warfare shows us are further examples of the role of variations in force employment in surviving or failing to survive modern firepower. And let me talk for a minute about Afghanistan and the 2001-2 campaign leading up to the fall of the Taliban and concluding in Operation Anaconda, i.e. the things that fit the kind of warfare that I'm talking about. And Earl, and in fact, a lot of people at the moment view Afghanistan as key empirical evidence for this hypothesis of revolutionary change because what they see in Afghanistan is a campaign of what they think was standoff precision warfare. This handful of special forces operators walk forward with laser designators and zap targets, 
the bolt, lightning bolt of Zeus in the form of 2,000 pound you know, JDAMs descends, evaporates the target, they walk forward a little further and zap the next one and they basically walk through Afghanistan this way. If that's what had happened, that would be pretty contrary to the logic of military outcomes I'm describing and I would conclude that there had been a revolution. And early in the campaign, that is pretty much what happened. Our opponents in Afghanistan were not a unified, homogeneous military organization. It was a collection of very different actors with very different military properties. And the, co the part of that constellation that had been pushed forward by the Taliban as a whole, and thus we encountered at the beginning of the campaign, were the least skilled, least trained parts of that coalition. Indigenous Afghan Talibans who were essentially unskilled villagers who were sent out in the field and taught to fight, they were caught exposed in the open, were destroyed in large numbers very quickly by standoff precision fires. As time went on, and as they were either killed or left the battlefield voluntarily, the target set shifted increasingly away from indigenous Afghan Taliban and toward harder core, better trained foreigners, and especially the Al-Qaeda personnel who went through Osama bin Laden's infamous training camps. The primary purpose of those training camps was not to produce terrorists. The overwhelming majority of the output of Osama bin Laden's training camps were conventional infantry taught something that looked an awful lot like a Western small unit infantry syllabus for use on the front lines in Afghanistan's civil war. Terrorism was a graduate syllabus. The honors grads from the infantry course then went on and learned explosives and demolition and disguise and all the rest. Most of these people were essentially trained infantry as we started fighting more of them, we started encountering people who were adopting significant fractions of the modern system. And that substantially reduced their exposure to our fires. If we look, for example, at Operation Anaconda in March 2002, we're fighting against an essentially all-Al-Qaeda defending force. Against that force, less than half of what we ultimately discovered to be Al-Qaeda's fighting positions on this battlefield were known to us in any way prior to our showing up, in spite of the fact that we're concentrating a very sizable fraction of all the surveillance and reconnaissance assets in this theater of war, and a non-trivial fraction of all the intelligence assets we have in the world on a tiny 10 by 10 kilometer postage stamp battlefield. In spite of that degree of intensive staring surveillance, most of the fire that we took in the course of Operation Anaconda came from defenders whose existence was unknown to us prior to our showing up and drawing the fire. And just to provide a somewhat more concrete sense of what this problem is about, this is a photograph of one of the Al-Qaeda fighting positions on Takurgar Mountain, colloquially called Objective Ginger, at the very southern edge of the Anaconda battlefield. Now, you know, I'm a civilian. What do I know about these things? But if, if there weren't a yellow arrow... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I probably wouldn't have looked at this and said that's an obvious fighting position put a JDAM on it now very effective local concealment body of overhanging rock to provide cover from drones, aircraft, satellites other overhead surveillance systems for a military organization like Al-Qaeda but not like the indigenous Afghan Taliban who's skilled enough to be able to exploit the complexity of the Earth's surface to provide cover and concealment in this way, this is going to be an extraordinarily difficult target acquisition and standoff precision strike program problem for the foreseeable future. I see nothing on the drawing board that's going to make positions like that targetable at standoff range. 
And what that suggests is that variations in the way people use their assets, like the difference between Al-Qaeda and the indigenous Afghan Taliban, continue even in the 21st century to have an important effect on the lethality of modern precision standoff technology. But what about Iraq in 2003? Obviously, there are many important issues associated with combat experience in Iraq. For my purposes, a particularly important question is, why were our casualties in the major combat phase, up to the taking down of the statue of Saddam in Alberto Square, so low? I mean, lots of people before the war were very worried that they weren't going to be. Lots of scenarios of a bloodbath in Baghdad that maybe they wouldn't exterminate the U.S. military, but they would impose enough of a blood cost on us that this would be a much more expensive operation than we hoped. None of that happened. Why not? Well, the standard argument, certainly in Washington at the moment, focuses on technology. That a combination of precision, information, and technology-facilitated speed has transformed warfare and is responsible for our ability to destroy one of the largest militaries in the world for what amounted to radically low casualties on our side. Now, by contrast, I'm arguing that you can't look at technology alone and explain these outcomes adequately. You have to look at how the forces are used. And when we look at the way the Iraqis in particular use their forces, what we see is probably the modern poster child for non-modern system force employment. And again, to provide a more concrete sense of what this is like, this is a T-72 from the Iraqi uh, Hammurabi Division that was deployed just west of Baghdad at a location we called Objective Montgomery. Uh, It was, the the position itself was prepared with a three-sided loose berm of sand that had been pushed up by dozer blades around the vehicle. Those of you who've been to Iraq have seen thousands of these. These three-sided horseshoe-shaped berms are all over the country. Most of them have nothing behind it. Some of them have wreckage. A few of them have now dead T-72s behind them. Among the reasons why the T-72s in these positions are now chiefly dead is there is no concealment at all, especially from overhead. This position is naked as a jaybird to the skies. Even from the ground, the fact that you've got a three-sided berm pushed up amounts to the equivalent of that yellow arrow in the previous slide, neon arrow <laughs> coming down, say, tank like here. In 1991, our tank crews were told as a matter of standard operating procedure to put a 120-millimeter round through any berm they saw just in case. And when that happens, a loose pile of sand is not going to help you very much. Loose piles of sand do not stop 120-millimeter depleted uranium kinetic energy rounds from M1 Abrams tanks. They don't even slow them down very much. And I'm told by those who know that it sort of shines the uranium up a little bit. But there are reports from American weapon crews of watching the round go into the berm, out of the berm, into the T-72, out of the T-72, at which point they lost the tracer over the horizon. This is not the modern system. This is out in an open rural area. Most of the scenarios for heavy casualties in Iraq were about urban warfare. What about urban warfare? There was a surprising amount of it. Why didn't any of it cause casualties? Well, this is a photograph of uh, an Iraqi combat position in Baghdad taken from a passing SUV. Now, again, I'm I'm not a soldier, but um, I would at least be suspicious that (laughs) that might be a fighting position. Now, if the U.S. military were deployed in Baghdad, and told, prepare this ground for defensive battle, we would be preparing the interiors of buildings. 
It's the buildings and their interiors that provide the cover and concealment potential associated with cities that make us worry about urban warfare. And yet we've owned this ground for a long time and have seen no evidence at all of any systematic attempt by the Iraqis in Baghdad, Najaf, Nazaria, Samoa, to create anywhere else in the country to prepare building interiors for combat in the way we would. No sandbagging, no loopholes, no barriers, no obstacles, no nothing. Almost all of the tactical combat action in Iraqi cities was with a completely exposed Iraqi opponent. This is a better situation than most of them made for themselves. Most of the tactical urban warfare in Iraq had the Iraqis on the tactical offense doing fully exposed mass charges on anything from mini bikes to buses to SUVs against Abrams and Bradley armored vehicles. This isn't modern system either. I think what we see in Iraq in 2003 is the consequences of 21st century firepower being directed at targets as exposed as this. And those consequences are very unpleasant for the people who choose to fight this way. On the other hand, in 2003 at least, there is no evidence from this campaign to show us what modern technology could do against modern system force employment because we didn't see any of it. We did from Al-Qaeda, at least parts of the modern system and at least the latter parts of Afghanistan, we did not in Iraq, and that suggests that there are some important external validity concerns associated with using this case as evidence for a thesis that holds the war is being transformed. So let me just sum up the key findings, and I'll quickly sketch some implications, and, and then I'll stop. Uh, key finding is that the material and the way it's used interact in a powerful, nonlinear way. And what that means is that we're going to predict combat outcomes as both the IR theoretical literature and the defense planning literature does Based exclusively on the material alone, we risk reaching gross errors in our expectations of what's going to happen. The future warfare debate in particular, I think, exaggerates the amount of change, underestimates the amount of continuity in the nature of warfare as it's, we've seen it recently. Technology's role in war is terribly important. You let no one go away thinking somebody from the Army War College thinks technology doesn't matter or that the Air Force isn't helpful. Technology is what creates that divergence between the two curves I showed you on the theoretical summary slide. It's important, but it's not uniquely, exclusively, deterministically important. And as a result, because it's often treated that way, it's affected or I think is often underestimated in this literature. Force employment, whereas everybody thinks it's important, few people study it in any systematic detail, tends to be underemphasized by contrast. <clears throat> And what's happening at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, I think, are extensions of very long-standing trends in the lethality of technology and the tactical response to that that could be traced all the way back to the First World War. I don't see any revolutionary discontinuity. <coughs> so what difference does this make? I'll start with IR theory. And the main point is that the kind of proxies that the IR theory, especially large-end flavor literature, uses to represent military power are so simple that they potentially undermine the, the empirical prospects of the undertaking. And that, in turn, means that that empirical literature is likely to underestimate, because of measurement error, the marginal causal influence of military power as opposed to all the other things that we, that we believe matter. And because power is a ubiquitous independent variable, and occurs in practically everything in international relations, and especially in practically every large-end study in the field, the potential effects run across an awfully large body of literature. 
Offense defense theory in particular, because it focuses so specifically on technology, which is held to determine at any given moment the relative ease of attack and defense, which is in turn held to imply important implications for international politics, is on especially thin ice because of its emphasis on a particular claim about how technology works that I think is, is excessively materialist in nature. We're going to do better than that. Somehow or another, we have to account for the way the forces get used, either by dealing with it explicitly, by building in the kinds of dimensions of force employment that I talked about earlier, or more probably, by building auxiliary theories to predict how people are going to use their forces as an intervening variable by reference to deeper properties and more observable properties ex ante of states like their social structure or their regime type or so on. And given that, it suggests that unit level effects, as many people are now observing, are going to be critically important for international politics. There's a certain tendency to associate strategic studies with system level explanation. On the other hand, I'm arguing that the central issue for strategic studies and the central issue for realism, mil real military power, is driven in terribly important ways by varying internal characteristics of states. And if we're not going to pay attention to those, we run the risk of making some important mis predictive mistakes. And of course, at the end of any implications for IR theory, uh, we have to discuss uh, full employment for academics and the opportunities for <laughs> going forward and doing future research. No study is ever the end of anything. The obvious issue is other conflict types. I, mean, I am going to be the last person to suggest to you that mid to high intensity conventional warfare is the only important military problem that the United States faces or the only important military problem that states have faced empirically in the past. On the other hand, I don't deal with any of those. I think it's important to deal with. What I have tried to do in the book is to make an existence proof that there's reason to believe that there will be variation in the way states use their forces. I have not produced a theory to predict how those forces will be used as a function of observable characteristics of states ex ante. I think that's a terribly important thing to do, both for doing IR theory right, but also for doing policy right, where it matters terribly how the Syrians, how the Iranians, how the North Koreans or the Chinese might prospectively use what they own in a fight against us. I don't think we have the, the theoretical foundation at the moment to answer any of those questions very well. I think we need to. And last but not least, if force employment is so important, we need a larger database on observations of its value for particular states and particular places. Existing databases just ignore it completely. I think there's a terribly important need for data development in this area. Now let me just finish up with a couple of words about policy. And I'm just going to focus on two policy issues that have been important for the transformation debate. Force structure, what kind and what size and what nature of military should we own. And in particular, lots of transformation advocates are arguing we need a radical restructuring of the U.S. military away from old-fashioned, expensive, labor-intensive, casually exposed close combat capability, and toward either, depending on which transformation camp you're in, a much heavier emphasis on high-technology standoff precision strike, or towards forces that are optimized for stability and support operations or counterinsurgency. I think either one of those are a risky program. They will sometimes be exactly the optimum military to own. If you are fighting against an enemy like the Iraqis, which cannot use the modern system and is fully exposed, that is precisely the sort of military you should buy. 
The trouble is it doesn't fail gracefully if you're fighting against opponents that reduce their exposure more effectively. And at the moment, I don't know that we can assume that we will never again face an opponent that looks more like al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and less like the Republican Guard in Iraq. What about joint military doctrine? Well, again, there are lots of people arguing for radical change. And in particular, they're pressing for an emphasis on speed, nonlinear operations, don't get close to the enemy where they can engage you on favorable terms to them, neither take nor hold ground, operate over the terrain, not for the terrain. Replace this orthodox series that the book talks about that I mostly skipped over, of concentration, breakthrough, and exploitation with simultaneous operations where we strike the entire target set through the entire depth of the theater of operations. I think this doctrinal program is neither necessary nor desirable. It's not necessary because warfare isn't being revolutionized. There's no revolution that doctrine needs to keep up with. It's not desirable because this kind of radical doctrinal change works great against unskilled enemies, but creates from a military that currently has very few weaknesses, real weaknesses, against militaries who can implement the modern system. Now, I tend to be cast as kind of the, the card-carrying poster child for Luddite approaches to military planning in general and technology in particular, and, and I will disavow only parts of that. Um, but the part of it I would disavow is the right answer here is not stasis. Stasis is just a straw man. All organizations, including military organizations, change all the time, and the U.S. military has ever since World War II, and it will continue to. On the other hand, the argument prominent in this literature that ordinary, business-as-usual, incremental updating of old concepts is unsustainable because of the nature of the world we find ourselves in, I think is wrong. Old-fashioned, business-as-usual, orthodox, incremental adaptation, I think is exactly the right answer for the condition we find ourselves in today. It's not stasis, but it's not radical transformation either. And with that, I'll, um, I'll stop and take whatever time we've got for questions. Why don't you deal with your own questions if you're comfortable with that? Sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> first, let me preface my remarks by saying uh, I've already reviewed Steve's book for International History Review, and um, it's the single best example of social science I've seen in probably 20 years. And I would recommend it as a model for how to uh, engage in a multi-methodological approach to handling competing explanations in social science in general or in military strategy. And I say that having him falsify me in the book. <laughs> uh, so it's like I'm a crucially hard case to say that. Uh, my question concerns um, the determinants of uh, why some states choose or can implement modern versus non-modern. Because that's the one part of your book, probably the only part of your book that you actually didn't test. You have three pages of a really, really rich set of hypotheses that people should go out and look at. And uh, here you presented as if you actually had determined what it was. Uh, so I'd like to ask you to uh, think about that and explain like, the following phenomena to us. Uh, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Japan, Imperial Japan, I'm sorry, Stalin's Soviet Union, Imperial Japan, did they implement the modern system? Uh, and if so, how did they do it despite all the pathologies that I presume you would identify with them? Second, on implications for IR theory, was the world ever bipolar? Uh, did the Soviet Union ever implement the modern system? 
uh, during the Cold War? Was the U.S. always the only country that had it? And in addition, is there any country today that implements the modern system other than the United States? Well, let me start with the second question and move to the first, since that's the way everyone always did. Um, does anybody out there other than us do this at the moment? And the short answer is, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows. And that's why I think the research agenda associated with building sustainable theoretical explanations of force employment is so important. Now, I mean, I, I'm nobody's excuse for a comparativist, so I'm, I'm prepared to believe that people with deep knowledge of North Korea or Syria or Iran could do a better job of producing a persuasive, subjective argument about how they're likely to do this. But as an IR type instead of a comparativist, I really believe it's essential that we build cross-regional theories to explain this because of its scholarly importance and its policy importance. And I don't think that body of of knowledge is there now. The one thing I would do, though, is to cite Al-Qaeda as an existence proof for the idea that you don't have to be a first world great power in order to do this. The fact that Al-Qaeda was able to do substantial parts, it's not the whole program by any means. I'm not trying to suggest that Al-Qaeda was the, the U.S. Marine Corps but, or the U.S. Army. Uh, but they managed to do enough of it to have a very important effect on the lethality of our precision fires. So I, I, I think they constituted at least an existence proof that in the 21st century this isn't impossible. But, but I think we need to get on with the business of building a better explanation. Now, with respect to the process of building a better explanation, you're right, there's nothing but hypotheses in the book. And I think that's a, that's a monograph-length, book-length undertaking that I would like to undertake and would make a great doctoral dissertation for who's looking for one. I mean, my hunch, which is all it is really, about the beginnings of a theory, would be that I mean, my instinct is that the modern system is a difficult and fragile thing and that there are a lot of things that can intervene to prevent somebody from implementing it. I'd be tempted to look at this as, here's a military optimum, and let's identify a series of constraints that can prevent states from realizing it. This is the beginnings of a hunch. And one of the constraints that I'm most interested in is civil-military relations, which, prefacing my comments slightly, Nazi Germany then becomes a critical case for. But the reason I'm so fascinated with civil-military relations is the Iraq case. I mean, here's a military that saw this stuff very up close and personal in 1991, had 10 years in which to learn from that experience and do something about it, and yet that photograph of the T-72 I showed you could just as easily have been taken from the battlefield of 73 Easting in 1991. Remarkably little change in Iraqi force employment over a long period of time where they knew darn well that this was a major problem facing them. Why can't they learn from experience and adopt this? And I think the pattern of civil-military relations in Baptist Iraq has a lot to do with this. And we were talking about this before lunch. At any given morning when Saddam rolls out of the SAG prior to 2003, the primary threat to his health that day is a bullet in the temple from his own officer corps. So job number one for an autocrat in a poisonous civil-military environment like Baptist Iraq is you must suppress coup conspiracies. And it turns out that the set of things that you do as a state-of-the-art autocrat, to suppress coup conspiracies systematically interfere with your ability to implement the modern system. And if we look, for example, at the problem of urban warfare tactics in the Iraqi military, um, we observe that they're completely exposed. We also observe that they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. The commander of the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Infantry Division that 
uh, moved into Baghdad from the north in the 2003 campaign, estimates that in spite of the fact that an Iraqi RPG-7 at a range of about 100 meters has an expected hit probability of 80% or more, that Iraqis filing volleys of this in fuselades at his brigade were getting hit rates of under 10%. So you ask, why is it that they can't hit anything, and why is it that their, that their urban tactics aren't any more efficacious than that? And I had the opportunity to interview a number of captured Iraqi officers, mostly battalion commanders above, and ask them, what sort of training had you had in urban warfare? And the answer was zero. Officers with 20 years of military experience hadn't had an hour of training in urban warfare tactics. We asked them, how much live fire did you do in the year prior to the war? The Baghdad Republican Guard Division, the elite light infantry formation in the Iraqi military, had done one live fire exercise in the year prior to the war in which each trooper was given 10 cartridges to fire. You can't zero your weapons with 10 rounds of live fire. You can't ensure that the sight and the barrel are aimed at the same thing at the same time. Now, you ask, why is it in a military setting in which every American commentator who could write an op-ed is telling the Iraqis that we're desperately afraid of urban warfare and that's your opportunity to kill lots of Americans, why do they produce this kind of military? Now, usually when I do this, somebody in the back says, oh, it's the sanctions. We, we gutted the Iraqi economy. We made it impossible for them to train. There is enough live ammunition in Iraq at the moment for every living Iraqi to spend the rest of their life doing continuous live fire. You can't throw a rock in Iraq without hitting an ammunition cache. That's not why they didn't do any live fire. I, I think Iraqi civil military relations tells us a lot about this. In every Iraqi city of any size, there's a palace. Palace is always on the highest ground in town. You know, I told the story to Rick earlier. There's always a moat or a plaza around it. It's to tell the locals who's in charge. And at any given moment during this period, Saddam is shuttling from palace to palace, which means that by and large, at any randomly selected time, Saddam Hussein's going to be in a city. He does not want large numbers of people with guns and live ammunition who know how to fight in the city and are comfortable doing it surrounding him in numbers that could overwhelm the Praetorian Guard that he can actually trust. I, I could go on because I'm so fascinated with the case, but, but I think there are a number of ways in which the poisonous civil military environment of Bathurst, Iraq, made it impossible for, the, for them to implement the modern system. I suspect that if one were to flesh that argument out, out deductively, that could be one of a series of constraints that could be sufficient to prevent states from approximating this the poisonous civil-military relations of Nazi Germany constitute an interesting critical case for theory development and would be one that I would tend to promptly uh, were I to undertake this. Well, that was a long answer. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're taking this, uh, the increased lethality argument to logical extreme, the obvious way to avoid being, uh, what do you call it, uh, exposure reduction, is to avoid battle and play and basically not present targets. So the logic, there is a revolution in military affairs, and one of the main is the logic of this is trying to respect the primitive warfare of Custer versus the Indians. It may very well. I mean, one response to the problem of American or Western, if you prefer, firepower is what people in the defense planning community call asymmetric warfare, which is a term I like very much. But it constitutes a variety of things like guerrilla tactics, hit and run, terrorism weapons of mass destruction at the opposite end of the intensity spectrum. 
The thing I find interesting, and, and that's all terribly important, and I think we see it happening already, and we should expect to see more of it. But one of the things I find interesting, though, about these kinds of cases is even for militaries that continue to retain as a strategic objective the holding of territory and the taking of territory, the ability to reduce your exposure is still central to the, to the difference between success and failure and the lethality of modern weapons. In Afghanistan, at least up through Operation Anaconda, the Taliban were not fighting a guerrilla war. This was not an insurgency. Yeah, so the lesson for both wars would seem to be that that just plain doesn't work and what you have to do is you're fighting insurgency or what the Soviet, what the Afghans did the Soviet. Well, I mean, therefore, the big lesson they brought may be exactly that standing fighting is totally stupid. You get clobbered, and so consequently, don't even try. And to a degree, they figured that out. I mean, so Certainly, that's one lesson that one could draw from this experience. One could also draw from this experience the lesson that Al-Qaeda and the Shai Kot Valley, if they'd been present in larger numbers, and it had been earlier in the campaign where they had something like a coherent front to work with, managed to substantially reduce the lethality of American technology. So even without abandoning the hope of holding ground, recent experience, I think, suggests that if we do encounter people who have those skills, even without resorting to asymmetric warfare, they can pose a much, much tougher military problem for us than we typically assume. And given that there are a lot of states around the world that for reasons of their own continue to retain large, more or less conventionally organized militaries, certainly the Iranians and the Syrians and the North Koreans and the Chinese are all in that category, uh, I, I think it would be a mistake to assume that they won't try and use them, at least in the way Saddam did. And Saddam organized what amounted to a layered defense. And the first layer is deterrence. If that fails, you put the regular Iraqi army you know, near the border. If that fails, you've got the Republican Guard behind them. If that fails, you've got the Special Republican Guard and the Fedayeen in the cities. If that fails, you go to an insurgency. I mean, you got these tanks anyway. And you, you own the Hammurabi Division. So I think we can expect that those things will be used just because they're out there and people have them already and they serve a variety of useful purposes in suppressing domestic dissent and dealing with neighbors who aren't as sophisticated as us and all the rest. But I, I think the business of understanding how capable could that body of military assets be remains important even with an expectation that more and more combatants are likely to decide that terrorism and insurgency and all the rest is an even better bet, or at least a very important fallback in the event that their conventional assets fail. And I have to ask the military question here just quickly. So, if I understand one of your central findings, and that is that um, force employment's role is underestimated, or if you will, underemphasized as a component of, of your findings. If you take a Army or maybe a Marine Corps that is highly adept at modern warfare, if you will, as you describe, and you place them into a situation such as we find ourselves in Iraq and some of Afghanistan, where they're not practicing that sort of warfare anymore, where they're having to do something asymmetrical other than war, mutual, whatever you want to call it. What are the implications of your theory on trying to get back to where they originally were, or do you have to adapt your training philosophy to incorporate more types of these more general sorts of, of um, employment techniques. What does it mean? Terribly important question for the upcoming quadrennial defense review. I mean, the, the assumption on the part of many in the Army senior leadership is 
we can retain in the U.S. military all the skills necessary to do the modern system and add on an additional skill set associated with doing counterinsurgency, and we don't lose anything. And the military is used to just adding duties to people and assuming that they'll always work longer or you know, come in on the weekend. for 200 years. There's a long tradition of abusive behavior. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, though, I mean, they're, they're, the world consists of constraints, and there are only so many hours in a week. And if you're going to add to the training syllabus of the U.S. military a set of very demanding skills associated with patrolling, roadblock maintenance, human intelligence at the individual level, cultural awareness, which is one of the most important issues associated with doing this well, and you're just going to assume that on the weekends, they'll be able to master a skill set as complex and challenging as this to the degree of mastery that they had back when they did nothing else, I think is, is very unsound. I mean, I'm perfectly persuaded that it may be the right geostrategic decision for the United States to shift toward a training syllabus that emphasizes these new problems, but the argument that you can do it without losing anything, I think, is unsound. It's going to come at a cost, and it will come at cost in terms of our ability to do these things at the casualty rates that we've seen in recent combat experience with a military that was optimized and trained against almost exclusively this set of problems. Now, having said all that, one other way of thinking about this might be a weird spin on the, the recent argument of a strategic pause. Before 2001, the general expectation was there aren't going to be any more big wars for a while. We can restructure the U.S. military during this strategic pause so that we're ready for what happens when China becomes a great power or whatnot. Um, you could argue that we are currently so adept at this and so you know, falling short with respect to our ability to do insurgency that we are going to temporarily accept a significant degradation in our capacity to do major combat if we find ourselves in that in Syria or Iran. Because we just have to do better at counterinsurgency. And once the counterinsurgency problem is gone, then we'll build it back up again. And if you believe that the ability to do something like the modern system is a function of structural characteristics of states, like, for example, harmonious civil military relations, then you might conclude that the United States has at least the preconditions for doing that and could reconstruct this when needed. Now, I don't think you're going to reconstruct it quickly. It took the American military a generation, from Vietnam to 1991, to reconstruct the capacity to do these kinds of operations after we mostly let it atrophy during the Vietnam era. So it won't happen quickly. But if you think it's strategically paramount to do other things in the near term, maybe you would be willing to accept the cost and the delay associated with doing that. The one thing you can't do is have your cake and eat it too. You can't simultaneously be good at things this hard in multiple non-overlapping domains. One more question. Yeah. How, um, you just got to be in the tactics of the day that we do uh, different forces for them. You set out the hypothesis. Yeah, in the book all I do is I lay out some possibilities. Mostly what I'm trying to do is just suggest that there might be reasons to expect states to differ with respect to their ability to do this. Sorry? Well, that's the challenge for theory construction at this point. Let me ask you this a little broader question. In which cases 
think the balance of power or just power politics where you used to be. I, I agree with you that these being counter-assessments aren't good. But which cases would force employment make much better predictions than you know, where have we gotten it so wrong where you would get it right? Well, the Middle East comes immediately to mind. For that matter, our recent experience in Iraq comes to mind. I mean, not that IR theory based on you know, proxies would suggest that the United States would lose the war, but IR theory based on proxies would lead one to suspect that the outcome wasn't going to be nearly as one-sided as either 1991 or 2003. Uh, but in situations where Small but highly skilled militaries have overcome large but unskilled militaries are all problematic for orthodox IR theory. So again, my, my favorite choice, if I were going to do it small end, would be any of the Arab-Israeli conflicts after 56. I think, I'm sorry, I think this is the, the follow-up on Randy. I think what he means, but what I'd like to hear your answer be, is where has, where does your theory predict balancing behavior where we predicted not balancing, where is predict, you know, not balancing where we predicted balancing. But in other words, your, your theory implies that somehow, since they're measuring power wrong, uh, we've misspecified polarities since, you know, 1648, we've misspecified uh, whether or not coalitions should or should not form. I guess, uh, like, that's the big question. Oh, darn it, you want me to do IR theory? Well, you have it up there, IR theory implications. <laughs> Associated with this ubiquitous, terribly important independent variable. 
And with that degree of arm waving, bobbing and weaving, you know, I'll, I'll leave unanswered a terribly important question that I think should be answered by somebody. <laughs> Preferably not me. But uh, Steve's going to be here in the afternoon, so if some of you want to talk with him further, uh, please let me know. But Steve, thanks very much. Thank you. You all? See, this is uh, Mark Arnold. He was in. Oh, not, 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 not,
eventually or for television. Yeah, it's almost the same brand. Yeah, it's everything. One possible is one contributing factor, so all of a most of the videos that I can't put in the line is because of the we had some mistakes in this report. Our work was not The United States had turned it on over, and we're not going to trouble you. Yeah, but let's get into war. It's a real yeah, you know, all the same, though, one, one of the factors relative to the situation My favorite is the reality of sticking out behind the best is a wholesale